choosing what career to do and what work to pursue is one of the biggest personal questions people face in their in their day-to-day lives. But Ant, what's the problem we're going to address when we talk about that this episode? Uh, well, I think the problem that we're addressing this episode is uh, really uh, along a capitalism kind of analysis bend that we've been doing for the last few, because we've mm. done a lot about taxes and um, properties and, and about properties and stuff. This one is, is kind of coming back to like the Facebook question we asked a long time ago, one of our most popular episodes, are you a bad person if you work at Facebook? And it's coming to the, the morality or the ethics around your career choices, right? Mm. And really, I mean, to summarize it, we were saying, what's a good way of putting it? It's a, should you be optimizing for work where pay is good or where you do good? And really, like, should there be a distinction between the two? Uh, you, you would think that it would be the most valuable, society, like societally valuable work that does good, but that doesn't actually seem to be what happens. It doesn't correlate always with what pays well, does it? So. Exactly. We're, we're keeping this episode relatively quick succession to ones. It's actually based on an essay that I will be publishing soon. So we're kind of turning that, taking that essay and turned it into a script. And I will link that from either my medium or, or I don't know, wherever else I choose to publish that in the show notes. So Jake, we're going to take a little bit of format where there's some questions and answers using the essay. Um, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, we'll get right into that. But first, welcome to the show. Guys, thanks for tuning in. I'm Jake, obviously. This is Ant. The recurring guest, as we described last time. <laughs> I, wanted to, I, I can't remember which episode. Oh, I was listening back to one and it's like, uh, I'm also a co-host, by the way. <laughs> in case that isn't obvious from context. You may know me from a, a quiz show that I, I may be appearing on at Ooh. some point. Oh my God, spoiler there, but it'll be a long time. So. <laughs> Just a tiny bit of housekeeping. Uh, you'll have heard the ACOS Plus membership quest at the beginning. If you're keen, sign up for that. Any way of supporting us is fantastic. The other biggest way you can support us is hitting follow on Spotify or whichever other platform you listen to us on. and Or sending gifts directly to our office, whatever. <laughs> yeah, we like that too. <laughs> you could be the first. And yeah, thank you for leaving your reviews, guys. Uh, we also really appreciate those and it helps other people find the show. Yes. Okay, Jake, so straight into the episode. As always, it's good to kick off with definitions. Since we still need to perfectly refine the title, we all know what the title is when you're listening to it. Yes. <laughs> Something along the lines of how do you like how do you find meaningful work or how do I choose an ethical career? Yeah, right. work, colon. Money or meaning? Money. Yeah, actually, I think that's a good one. Work Control on money or meaning. Leah will be dead chuff with that because that was what was that hers? Oh god! No, we can't use that one then. <laughs> that was the one I liked a lot. Uh, I, I wanted like long, money or meaning. We'll go with that. Go on. But yeah, first thing to define then is what is work? Okay, interesting. Well, work is obviously the way that you will productively fill your life, right? Mm-hmm. It is the stuff that you are doing. I was not expecting that question. Where where was? The, oh, is there? <laughs> it's the it's the first question. I can provide a sort of answer to that. Like you said, I think work is essentially the time allocated to contributing to society it's normally is that necessarily true contributing to society i think it's the it thing not necessarily it's something you it's, it's the way you productive. sell your time yeah it's value productive activity that you do definitely to support yourself and we would hope that it's structured such that the ways that you are supporting yourself mm. are useful in general right but that i guess is kind of kind of driving at the problem we're going to discuss i remember actually back at uni we we did this for one of the um more like fluffy management modules and there was a whole piece that one of the modules in the week was um why do we work what is work there were loads of theories the more banal being like you know banal 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 yeah the more i thought you were talking about being the consulting (laughs) the more banal being like work is something that structures your day all the way through to like work is how we find meaning work is how we give back to others work is literally how we earn a living lots of things going on there but yeah essentially we're going to be talking about work in the way that you most colloquially understand it as this is the part of my time that I sell and and make a career around. I guess a career is slightly different from work in terms of a career has like a sort of narrative arc, a trajectory. Mm. Which is why generally if you're working in a local shop, you don't call it a career, you call it a job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Next up, what is value? Or when we think of things being value add, which is something we'll talk about a lot in these episodes, what do we mean there? I suppose ultimately any sort of value is 
also it comes back to a sort of utilitarian perspective where it's like you are providing benefit and the core like outcome of benefit is improving living standards and improving like mental like mm-hmm. welfare as in like i say mental welfare as in people enjoy stuff right that's difficult because you could you could have a like destitute economy where like people are kind of happy but you also think about like standards of living right so that would be some of the stuff that you think about there like basically like useful goods and services things that people are willing to pay for mm-hmm. not forced to pay for because they contribute positively to their lives mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so then when we come to the the sort of title kind of element of definition i mean actually rewind a little bit and going slightly off script is value necessarily the same as meaning? No, no. So, so there's a presumption here, which we talk a little bit about. But like generally when you talk to people and you say to them, oh, you know, like what do you want to do with your with your life, with your career? Right. Mm. A lot of people will say stuff like make a difference, have an impact, add value, you know, these sort of things. Right. So there is a presumption that like most healthy members of society or positive members of society do have this kind of drive to mm-hmm. contribute positively, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And it makes sense. It's a social thing. We're, we're social creatures. We are driven to feel connected to people. It can be a source of huge happiness to feel like a valued member of a community. And the way that you do that is by contributing positively, right? Yeah, I think so. That's, that's what people would tend to understand as fulfilling work. Yep. It's work where you can see yourself contributing, making a difference, doing and, something and, positive, right? And then, and then, sort of being being rewarded for that. Yeah, for sure. I, w- I would also say that, that I mean, there's a few different elements. I remember there's that I think it's a TED talk or something similar where they talk about like a few of the things that make work fulfilling, and it's like some of the things you're looking for are autonomy. Mm-hmm. So uh, oh, this is Dan Pink. I love this. Yeah. Is it Dan Pink? Okay, autonomy, uh, mastery, the feeling that yep. you're learning things and getting good at things. What would another example be? Purpose is the purpose. Thing. Well, this is this fills that purpose part. The, the mm-hmm. contributing positively fills purpose, but it doesn't necessarily fill those other two. And what was the fourth one? I think it's just three. If oh, it's I just three. Okay. Yeah. Autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Yep. It's interesting that he strikes, he defines those three because it's it's contrasted with just like the extrinsic reward of more pay. Yeah. Because people tend to say, you know, yes, exactly. pay people more and you'll get more results. And he's saying, actually, when it comes to creative or cognitively challenging work, paying people more doesn't necessarily drive better results. It's giving people freedom, giving them a sense of like, I'm getting better at this. Yep. I'm giving yeah, yeah. them a kind of deeper reason. And yep. that's what drives results. But it's, it's interesting because it's one of those weird things where it's like, because it's three, it immediately kind of creates this sort of sense of like, oh, they're all equal, right? Mm-hmm. Purpose is the overriding one. I think so. And autonomy and mastery are more like features that like managers should try to build into jobs to keep people motivated or mm-hmm. like keep people feel engaged, right? But like the fundamental one is purpose. Like if I had to choose between, you know, if I could only pick one, purpose is the one that, I and most people would pick. That said, you could do something that's fantastic, but you could find it incredibly boring and then it's kind of hard to stick out, right? Yeah. And it's interesting when you break it down like that, because I think a lot of people go into challenging careers where, uh, let's say you're going to uh, pick a hedge fund or an investment bank or something. Yeah, like high frequency trading, you're all physics PhDs or whatever. Like it's it's really interesting, uh, like in terms of mastery. Mastery, and mastery is probably the one that you, yeah, you get the most out of. And, and maybe you get some autonomy or maybe not, depending on the way the job is structured. But you probably have to then derive purpose from your sense of mastery or from yeah, yeah you kind of need to do some mental gymnastics where it's like oh this is providing purpose because it fits into some narrative of like enriching my life mm. through i don't know cash or status or something like that but then fundamentally like i think people miss that final step where like the reason people tend to want those things like power money status is to convert it into something positive at some level right mm. well i mean some number of people will say like oh you know i just want to make money and then hang out and chill right <laughs> i think that that's an unhealthy perception of work i don't think that's a, a real perception of work right like when you actually think it's quite a reductive perception. It's a very, it's a very sort of neoliberal capitalist. Like work is a terrible thing that you put up with just so that you have free time. Mm. And really, what people want to do is nothing all the time, <laughs> uh, which I don't agree with. Like actually, people do lots of creative, interesting stuff. They just don't categorize it as work because we've been, it's been so ingrained that it should be like things that you hate that you have to do because they pay. This is the the fundamental issue is that there's no a disjoint between like what's valuable 
or enriching to you personally or to society more widely and what pays well. And then lastly, uh, the final definition. We've kind of walked around it, but uh, what would you say is low value work? Because when you yeah. first sent me your essay, you said it's time to swear off low value work. That was kind of the working title. Yeah, 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 yeah. Talk, I think talk to, to us about that. In fairness, that's a little bit, I realize now that that's a confusing uh, title just because low value, low value could come about in two ways, right? Mm-hmm. When you think about any company, okay, and you think about like Adam Smith's idea of the invisible hand and stuff, basically the idea is that, or the capitalist paradigm is that profit is basically a sign that you're doing something good, right? Mm-hmm. Within reason, like actually you, 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 in a perfectly competitive market, your profit should be competed away effectively. Mm-hmm. But you know, in reality, you keep a little bit. Profit should be a sign that you're doing something value accretive, right? It means you're taking some raw resources, like they could be physical, it could be time, it could be space, mm-hmm. whatever, and you're turning them into something that's more valuable than those raw resources themselves and the cost of converting it into something. And that's why you get to keep profit, right? But if you actually think about value creation and profit, profit is basically a proportion of the value that you create. And some companies or or activities can create a, a huge amount of value and then either choose to or not be able to capture a large part of it. So Wikipedia is a great example of like huge value capture, yeah. no profit. And maybe they wouldn't have been able to create as much value if there was a profit incentive somehow baked in there. Sometimes, you know, you can find a, a business model that makes sense. Sometimes you can't. However, so when you say low value, it could be either hugely, <laughs> hugely valuable to society, low value capture, mm-hmm. or it could be fundamentally low value production. Right? So not actually a value to society. Not something that doesn't add that much value value. And then as a result, you're not capturing that much as profit. However, this is why I realize it's not that great a title, low value work, because it captures those two. The thing that I really have an issue with is rent seeking, right? Yes. Tell us about that. Yes. What is so, rent seeking? So when we were talking about profits just then, we we're talking about it in, in the context of the invisible hand. It's like, oh, you know, I'm adding value. I keep a little bit of that value. And that's, that's the capitalist incentive. That's profit. And that's when profit means I'm doing good, right? The problem is what happens when in economics, a rent is actually like a, an undeserved gain, mm. right? What happens when you start to have all these people who realize that actually it's easier to extract rents from the people around you or, or from other companies and services. So instead of, you know, say, for example, adding X and then taking some percentage of X as your profit, you can just take someone else's X, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, I mean, people will be most familiar with the concept of rent in the context of housing. I mean, we did a whole series on property recently. But when you're talking about rent here and rent seeking in particular, can you give us an example? Yes. Okay. So it would be, it would be, for example, say an investment bank is doing an yeah, IPO, right? <laughs> investment bank. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> so investment, lots of people don't understand this, right? So they're saying, uh, you know, often like a new stock will come to the market or whatever. Investment bank does the IPO and it's like, oh, it has a huge pop on the first day. Yay. Great. Right. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people think that's a good thing. And they don't realize like what's actually happened is if there's a huge pop on the first day, that means that the initial price that they offered to their clients was too low. Mm-hmm. It means they mispriced <laughs> the company. Like imagine if you're, you're a shareholder in the company, mm-hmm. right? You've just raised the X valuation and then it doubles the next day. That's mm-hmm. right. On the one hand, you'd be like, okay, it's cool that the valuation doubled. But on the other, it'd be like, well, why the hell did I just raise it that value? Because <laughs> literally like, the business is not different to 24 hours ago, mm-hmm. right? You've just priced it incorrectly for your clients to get basically a free benefit, mm-hmm. right? Or a special benefit. That's a little confusing, but just to use the term. So rent seeking in this economic sense is when rather than creating value and taking a portion of it, you are just capturing someone else's value. Another really good example that is like a classic, classic one is asset managers. People who advise people on how to move their stocks and shares around, right? This is my, my, my biggest bugbear because there's plenty of evidence that actually 
asset managers just don't beat index funds. Like mm-hmm. the S&P 500 did a study and it was like over a 15 year period, 95% of asset managers didn't beat just an index of the market. Right. And I think you often see stuff around like, um, I don't know how true this is, but if you've got like chimps to pick <laughs> stocks at random, right? Yeah. Or literally like people, people were to behave in that way. You actually outperform. Yeah. Not everyone. uh, Some number of them you will, yeah. Some number of them you will. And and the thing is, actually, they're paying, they're, sorry, not paying, they're charging you for the time and services that's going into their research that's actually contributing no value. That's actually, like, empirically not adding anything. And yet they're such successful industries. And yet they're such successful industries. So that's an example of rent, right? They are charging you to, to, to do worse than just indexing the market. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's actually just extracting value from you. The thing I find so interesting about that industry as well is like, that's the empirical fact, right? The 5% who do beat the market over a 15 year period. I don't know off the top of my head, but I would say that 5% is like, well, a large number that, you know, some number of people are going to beat the market just by sheer chance. You could, like, if if you, like if it was a distribution, normal distribution even. So, I mean, you, you could literally have the chimps and like some groups of chimps would beat the market. (laughs) (laughs) It would become a smaller and smaller amount over time as the time becomes larger and larger. Right. Uh, But that's just survivorship bias. And, but then, I mean, flip it around okay let's say that what they did did work Mm -hmm. right and this is something that drives me mad okay you have some people who you can pay and then they can help you do better than everyone else in the market right Mm -hmm. so in the very best case all you're saying is that the rich can pay to get richer faster than everyone else which really is just going to be pulling wealth because the start you know secondary stock market Mm. it's winners and losers right it's a, a zero-sum game. It's, it's a zero-sum right? game, right? Depending on the time horizon, like, you know, we can all go into index funds and stuff, but then you're also creating a bubble, which hurts everyone eventually, <laughs> right? Which is kind of what we're seeing now. But largely, if we're talking trading in the, like, you know, short to midterm, it's a zero-sum game. Like, if a stock goes up, the person that I bought it from has lost out there, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you're basically saying that we could create a service that would successfully transfer wealth based on how much you could pay, mm. right? Which sounds like it's going to exacerbate inequality. Yeah, which sounds like, that would just feed into inequality, right? But instead, they're, that, oh, it's okay, that's not true. Instead, they're just rent-seeking. <laughs> instead, they're just <laughs> destroying value. So that's kind of, I think that the, the fundamental issue that I see in society at the moment is that, I will read from a paragraph. Go on, Collius, 2022. Yeah. In a post-war haze of the mid-20th century, graduates from the world's greatest institutions left education with a burning desire to address some of the world's biggest issues, global health, making space travel a reality, doing genuine good within our governments. Now we take graduate schemes that ship us to companies we hold unamicable feelings towards so we can help decide how to ship a new product designed to leech our attention, or maybe we advise other businesses on how many staff they can fire. We rearrange PowerPoints at large banks or advise the already rich on how to rearrange their portfolio on a secondary market. All this just so that we may hope to build up a deposit for the unlivable circumstances of pretty much any major metropolitan area in the 21st century. I appreciate that reality can often get in the way of our dreams, but it frustrates me to see the number of my peers who succumb to this set of aspirations versus aiming to change the world for the better, as if financial success should not simply be done in tandem and that success in any field can't realistically lead to a dignified life. That's very poetic. And we'll take that point to have a quick ad break, but we'll be back. (laughs) That's so good. (laughs) Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, everybody. Welcome back. You just heard Ant's actually really quite well-written assessment of the Mm. problem. So I think now we understand the problem, but let's break it down now. Why do you think this happens, particularly on a sort of 
individual aspirational level? What's going on? I think genuinely, uh, it's funny how like it's come into sharp focus recently, this kind of cost of living crisis. But I think so many people are missing that like this has been to some extent decades in the in the making. And there's so many layers to this. And to, like, to some to, extent weeks, thanks to, to this trust. But <laughs> it, 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 it's genuinely like short term to some extent weeks, uh, no, to I, some extent years, to some extent decades, right? We have been at like near zero interest rates since 2008, not mm-hmm. sustainable. But then also, like if you think about economic activity and support over COVID, I think a lot of people don't realize that like a lot of the economic impacts that we're seeing now were inevitable outcomes of the like spending and protections that we were offering during COVID. Mm. Uh, I mean, like the, the amount of money that each government was putting into supporting people, you know, in our case, furlough, uh, R being UK, yep. in the US case, um, the direct uh, cash deposits, and how that was inevitably going to be driving up inflation as kind of economic activity re- restarted. And actually, still, when you think about like raw resources and stuff, still super expensive because supply chains are still kind of backed up. Yeah, yeah, um, they're still they're blocked up from all the sort of COVID problems and, and, and issues they were having yeah. before. So there's, there's some issues there. But I mean, again, another reading. I think the fundamental issue isn't so much the choices people are making, but the structures that exist. Like, quote, our economies are no longer serving adequate infrastructure to properly incentivize productive activity and that the bar for living a dignified life is simply rising too quickly. Sorry, there was a little pause there because I, I wrote bear instead of bar. <laughs> sometimes you eat the bar and sometimes the bar eats you. Yes. So in layman's terms, there's too much opportunity and pressure to take on very high paying but socially unproductive work. And that's that very high paying work as well is something to do with the obsession with GDP versus real value, right? Because I think the interesting thing about so much of this rent-seeking work that I'm calling relatively low value is that it's all meta-industries, right? It's, it all, it's, it's like you were saying, it's on secondary markets. It's all stuff that's like, it, it meta is the perfect word because yeah. it is layered it's on work, top of work that's yeah. actually fundamentally... It's work on top of work, right? Mm. Like, it, so, so everyone's like, oh, the stock market and people work on the stock market and work on finance. Like, People don't realize that finance is supposed to provide finance to actual businesses, mm. right? to people who are actually doing stuff, who are actually making things, selling things, doing things for people, right? So all the investment banks, you know, if there's no actual companies to IPO who are actually doing stuff, mm. <laughs> they have no one to, to IPO. They, they have no one to sell their stocks to. It's fascinating to me that there's still so much glamour surrounding those industries, actually, because I remember that growing up in the in the build up to 08, they were quite glorified industries, um, even though, you know, you, you had sort of the kind of Wolf of Wall Street-esque negativity around it as well. It was mm. always something as seen like, you know, if you're bright, you go into finance, you can make tons of money, high octane career, it's exciting. In many ways, it, I think it was over-glamorized. And I think yeah. I'm surprised that 08 hasn't recalibrated that. I think to no. some extent it has. I think tech is... Tech is tech in there as well. And tech, tech has the benefit of being super scalable. I think the fundamental issue is that the cost of living and life in general has reached the point where there's far too many fields, and they're important fields, where you could be doing exceptionally well and mm. you would not lead a comfortable life. Like mm-hmm. you could be a very successful doctor unless you took on a bunch of private work as well. You would not live a good life. I mean, if you think if about... You, yeah, if you're, if you're capable of becoming a doctor, you're clearly bright enough to be doing a similarly well. Person Your opportunity or, cost is high. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I've met some doctors in the... <laughs> <laughs> I do find like, if you take like the salary range that we offer junior doctors as an example, or take the salary range that we offer... Another one, barristers aren't paid particularly well, yeah, are they? Yeah, Granted, Again, have to be really highly qualified as well. Yep, yeah, and you have to be really, really highly qualified. Like all of these sort of career tracks where actually like it takes well into your 40s, 50s to earn enough to really have a kind of comfortable life commensurate with the level of uh, like time that you've put in and the, your, your relative skill set. To quote, necessity seems to have forced the modern graduate to focus first and foremost on cash so that we may one day claw together enough for a deposit on a mortgage. This effective economic serfdom is the frustrating part. Many millennials in such circumstances, quote, are only going to do it until they've saved up enough. 
end quote. A statement that acknowledges their position as an economic captive. But, so it goes, as long as the returns to capital are greater than the returns to labor, our youth is best spent amassing as much capital as is possible. Our greatest dreams watered down to the hope that we might save up enough to spend at least a bit of our working life doing something we actually care about. Mm. I'm really glad you mentioned the returns to capital and returns to labor. Because I think it's a mm. good time to introduce... Um, Thomas Piketty, famous economist. We've talked about him on previous episodes. I'll give you a quick rundown of him again here. So what Piketty did that was fascinating was the prevailing economic consensus before he came around and and published his work, Capital in the 21st Century, was that general GDP growth was for the benefit of all society. There was Mm. this kind of concept of trickle-down economics, the idea that, Mm, you know, as the rich get richer, it feeds down to the rest of society. I mean, at the most extreme extreme end, this is just the Adam Smithism, which also Mm. is deeply misunderstood because Adam Smith often says, like, you know, in well-governed societies and actually yeah, was, was nice caveat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was like he was a rather liberal person by the standards of the time and he was very much for the opinion like, well, you know, obviously governments wouldn't just allow rent seeking companies to exist. That was in no one's interest, right? Mm. But instead he's used as a, a a kind of oh free market idol, free meaning free of any sort of, you know, interaction or limitations, despite the fact that he himself was very liberal. Mm, indeed. Coming back to Piketty, what's so sort of impactful about the data he publishes is that he just collects loads of stats like so much data over over the last sort of centuries and demonstrates empirically that society is actually getting more unequal not mm. less and that's driven by this fundamental dynamic you mentioned which is that the returns to capital outstrip the returns to labor so as you get richer you accrue more capital the capital works for itself it generates incomes and at some point that wealth accelerates you become wealthier yep. and wealthier on the other hand if you're just selling your time if you're just a laborer if you're just working mm-hmm. your income goes up a, a, a lower percentage there's a gap that builds uh, and that gap is only being exacerbated by yep. time. So between the fact that the returns to capital are greater than returns to labor and the fact that asset prices are rising so quickly, so assets we're going to need, like houses you want to buy as soon as possible, uh, people are under pressure to earn as much money as quickly as possible. And I think the interesting thing is that there is some cultural understanding of this. Like if you think about post-08, you know, I think, again, a quote, uh, the conclusion we drew above or have been talking about uh, doesn't fit the modern zeitgeist. There is, in fact, a cultural dichotomy between doing good and making money. Doing good is working at a charity. Making money is working at an investment bank. So how has this kind of come about to, to be the case? Like, why is it that we have built that kind of separation between the two over time? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, in the next episode, we'll get more into why we think, like, what can be done about this problem? Why, why the system is kind of broken down to this extent and what we'd like to do to solve it. To wrap up this one, do you have a quick summary of why you think capitalism is letting us down? Is it even capitalism that's to blame? What's going wrong here? No, I think that there's actually lots of great things about capitalism. I'm not advocating for some different form of society at large. I think the major issues is just seize the means of production. <laughs> that's, well, that's exactly not what I'm saying. I actually think, like, ironically, the nuance of Adam Smith himself is exactly what's missing, right? Like, the profit-making incentive and self-focused incentives do make sense, but we should be basically regulating or making unappealing rent-seeking activities, activities that are not actually actually that helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, we just have realized, and we'll talk a bit about why some of his models have failed or his ideas of human behavior and interaction don't really bear out in the real world. If you actually follow and understand his nuance, you, you'll see that he just uses kind of, in, he does say it in, in much greater detail, but you know, we'll use terms like well-governed, right? Mm-hmm. That's the part that we're missing. We're not actually governing out of existence activities that suck value out of other places in society rather than generate their profits by contributing and taking a portion. It's that purest perspective, isn't it? It's I think in some ways where we let ourselves down societally in the last sort of 30, 40 years and certainly in the build up to 08 was this um, undue idolization of free market economics and this idea of free markets without constraint, as in too much emphasis on the free part of the Mm -hmm. market. Because exactly like you say, markets 
aren't perfect systems. There need to be rules, there need to be regulations, and yep. there needs to be exactly. good government. However, in, in defense of markets, like it's not to say that, that, like I said, markets function well. It's the contributions of private companies over time who are who have a profit-making incentive. Granted, there's some amount of like public goods like GPS and whatever that have come into this that made it really effective. But it's the culmination of those things over time that make life today so much better than 200 years ago mm. for everyone, right? Like, you know, iPhones and, and the internet and, and you know, all the products that you can access so easily for free online. Mm. Uh, like I can type into a, a bloody search bar and generate an image of whatever I want now. I I mean, it's not, not a huge societal benefit, but you get what I mean. Like, I can, Raccoons I can call on thrones. <laughs> exactly, Tudor art. I did actually make that immediately. But like, you know, I could, I can travel across the planet affordably, remit money anywhere in the world affordably, work from anywhere. Uh, like, all of these things are, are, are a miracle of modern technology. Genuinely, all kind of layered on top of each other and rippling outwards, right? Mm-hmm. But that's also actual you know, value productive activities, not because of investment bankers and lawyers that I'm mm. able to do all those things. I think Adam Smith has a nice quote on that as well. It is the great multiplication of productions of all the different arts in consequence of the division of labor, which occasions in a well-governed society, well-governed, mm-hmm. uh, that universal that universal opulence, which extends itself to the lowest ranks of the people. That's a lovely quote on which to end. So thank you guys for listening. Again, thanks for leaving reviews. Thanks for sharing this podcast if you enjoy it. We really appreciate it. And we'll be back very, very soon with the follow on to this episode. Yes, we'll discuss why Adam Smith's model fails and what we can do, why rent seeking continues and what we as individuals and people in general can look to do to change it. Awesome.